Well, one more sleep to a super Sunday of the Euro 2020 final action and the men's singles at Wimbledon really must be your version of heaven, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it has been a sensational week for sport in the UK, but I think we're all just hoping, well, I'm hoping that England wins tomorrow, but I don't think the rest of the world are, so we'll see. But be honest, did you ever think that England would get this far in Euro 2020? After the Scotland match, absolutely not. But before the tournament, I did. But, I mean, it was super interesting. I was talking to my dad who said even he wasn't alive when England were last in a major international football final. So, like, it's I don't think it's quite sunk in just how significant this is, whatever happens tomorrow. Well, one more hurdle to go, but it is the biggest hurdle that lies ahead. But there's another hurdle that lies ahead this morning, isn't it? There is indeed, yes. It is Saturday the 10th of July, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Churn. How are you doing, Churn? Good, thank you. I've been watching the action, both in football and tennis from afar, and absolutely loving it. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been, as I said last week, it's my favourite fortnight of the week every year. But uh, have you been watching Wimbledon much? Any favourite matches this week? I have been. I have watched a bit. Um, I, it used to be the case where in the women's finals, I usually don't know who... Who who the, who are in the final four playing in the final? But this time around, the men's side. I mean, I had to Google who uh, Fedra lost to earlier in the week, and I vaguely know a little bit now about who Djokovic is going to play in the final. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like a bit of a turnover period in men's tennis, which is always interesting. Sadly, Novak Djokovic is still there, but we can gloss over that. But nevertheless, we have things to cover on this week's podcast, isn't it, Sam? We certainly do, because this week, as the Euro 2020 tournament concludes, so does our European-themed month on the podcast. And we'll be marking the last episode of this series by talking about one of tomorrow's Euro 2020 finalists, Italy. We'll be discussing the ever-changing party system over there and some of the trends that have dominated recent years, just months after Mario Draghi was installed as the latest technocratic prime minister after a period of turmoil. But first, we have a couple of news items to wrap up, don't we, Churn? Indeed we do, and I cannot believe we're back here again talking about leadership upheaval in the Democratic Unionist Party or DUP in Northern Ireland. But that is the situation we find ourselves in. After just 22 days in the job, Edwin Poots was forced to step down. The decision to step down came after tumultuous few days of the party, stemming after Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis decided to, to legislate an Irish Language Act in the Westminster Parliament in order to get Sinn Féin to restore the Northern Ireland executive, given that you're going to need the party that came first, the DUP, and both and Sinn Féin, which represents two divides of the Protestant Catholic divide in Northern Ireland, to restore the Northern Ireland executive. The decision to legislate um, the Irish Language Act in Westminster infuriated the DUP, who asked Poots not to nominate his ally, Paul Given, as, as First Minister, which he was planning to do. 
advice that was subsequently ignored by Edwin Poots. And he ignored his party by an overwhelming vote of 24 to 4 against nomination. And following the fact that um, Poots nominated give, Paul Given, this precipitated DUP officials to out Edwin Poots and Poots relented by resigning later that day. In the leadership contest that followed, Sir Jeffrey Donaldson, who is the MP for Lake and Valley, and who narrowly lost to Poots in the prior leadership election, was elected unopposed. And he announced a wider ministerial reshuffle would take place in September. But for now, he has kept all of Poots' nomination to the Northern Ireland Executive, including Poots as Agriculture Minister. And with the sole exception of Paul Frews, who was placed as Economy Minister by Gordon Lyons, who is a Donaldson supporter, and Gary Middleton, who takes his place as junior minister to the first minister. So first of all, Sam, I just want to keep an eye out to the wider September reshuffle. Do you think Paul Gibbon is likely to remain as first minister in that September reshuffle? Or will Edwin Poots himself remain in the Northern Ireland executive? Well, I mean, in terms of Paul Given, it seems that he's on a bit of borrowed time as first minister because even when Geoffrey Donaldson ran for leadership against Edwin Poots, it was on the understanding that should Geoffrey Donaldson be elected leader, he would also want to become First Minister in Northern Ireland. And I think Paul Given's position as First Minister now is only in place whilst Donaldson works out what his best route into Stormont is, which I think will come over the summer and into the early autumn when I think it's likely that Geoffrey Donaldson will resign his seat in Westminster, triggering a by-election in Largan Valley, and then will try and make his way into Stormont to take over as First Minister. Um, with regards to Edwin Poots, I think it's unclear whether he will remain in his position, but my personal bets would be that he does, or at least remain in some kind of ministerial position just for the sake of party unity. But I think in terms of Paul Given, I think it's just a matter of time before his brief tenure as First Minister will come to an end. That would mean essentially the current Northern Ireland executive would collapse and mm -hmm. a new one would have to be reformed. So what concessions additionally will you need to get Sinn Féin back around the cabinet table? Wouldn't that also put the DUP in an even weaker position or put the entire executive in even more doubt and uncertainty? Well, I think it will because, as you said, one of the key reasons that Edwin Poots was ousted was because of the concession that Sinn Féin could not live without, which was a pledge that the Irish Language Act, as was discussed in the New Decade New Approach deal that was signed in 2020 when power sharing was restored, um, that that act was passed. And if Geoffrey Donaldson doesn't agree to that in reforming an executive, then there is no chance that an executive could be formed. I think there's a bit of a different thing going on here this time which is that there is an election due early next year. So Northern Ireland will be returning to the polls, and I think most parties will view that as an opportunity to get their position across to the voters and try and shake up the seat count in Stormont. But I certainly think once Geoffrey Donaldson does try to become First Minister himself and they have to reopen negotiations with Sinn Féin, we could be seeing quite a difficult few months in Northern Ireland once again. And let's talk a little bit about Edwin Poots because I, I, 22 days must be a record for shortest elected tenure of a political party. Was Edwin Poots' leadership, do you think, 
doom from the minute he was elected, given the divisions that existed within the party, or was it solely because of him ignoring the party's wishes in order to nominate Paul Give, his ally Paul Give, as first minister? I mean, you say he was one of the shortest in UK, but there is one leader who has, in recent years, has served a shorter time than him, and that's Diane James's tenure as leader of the UK Independence Party. But yeah, I mean, in terms of his leadership, I don't think it was necessarily doomed from the start, because although it was quite a narrow vote between him and Donaldson, I think people genuinely wanted to support him as a united party. And it was then his decision to nominate Given despite the Sinn Féin concession and despite the vote of the internal party that really doomed his leadership. It all seemed to come about very quickly between him nominating Paul Given and then the party just having no confidence in him at all. So I don't necessarily think it was doomed from the beginning, but from the moment he decided to carry on regardless with restoring power sharing, I think his position then just became completely untenable. I think I think from what it was doomed from was the fact that he promised to run a new approach from the Arlene Foster reign, where she made all the decisions against what sometimes what DUP wanted, mm-hmm. and it, it showed in the end to everyone was concerned that this is basically a new person deciding to do whatever he wanted to do and ignoring the wider wishes of the DUP. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said though. This creates for the DUP at Westminster some problems. You're gonna have a by-election in Lagan Valley. And we know the alliance ate into quite a large vote in the 2019 general election. So it leaves that possibly vulnerable to another alliance MP in Westminster. And it doesn't change the equation about the fact that an Irish language mm-hmm. act, which is one of the DUP central tenets in bring in, in anger, to be honest, is still going to be legislated. So what happens next? Well, that is the prevailing question here, because everyone was saying, well, you might want to remove Edwin Poots as leader because you don't agree with this concession, but this concession is going to remain or power sharing is going to collapse. And I don't think that's in the interest of the DUP either. As I said, I think a lot of this hinges on the fact that an election is quite imminent in Northern Ireland. So I think a lot of parties will be holding out for that, especially Sinn Féin, actually, because they're currently polling in first place. So... I think really it doesn't necessarily change the equation in terms of the policy outcomes, particularly around the Irish Language Act, but I think it changes the equation in terms of the DUP's assertiveness around things like the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Language Act moving forwards, and also social issues seem to have come to the fore again under Geoffrey Donaldson. So as for what comes next, I'm not really sure, but I think all eyes will be on the election next year because I think that's going to be the next clinch point in terms of the future of power sharing in Northern Ireland. And finally, is Sir Geoffrey Donaldson a man to not only unite DUP but restore it to the heights that it once traversed, given, given that in the opinion polls at least, it has suffered quite badly in the last year or so? I think he certainly seems to be able to unite the party, at least publicly, in the past few days, because even when Edwin Poots was elected leader, Jeffrey Donaldson performed quite well in that leadership contest and had some staunch allies because it was seen as a battle between the Stormont wing of the party and the Westminster wing of the party who has traditionally had more of an influence. So I think he's certainly more comfortable in his position than Poots was in terms of 
big beasts in the party around him. Um, but in terms of restoring it to their heights, I'm really not sure because the DUP have been on a downward trajectory for a number of years now. And I don't think a last minute leadership change going into next year's election will make much of a difference in that respect because the UUP and TUV are starting to eat in their vote quite considerably. So I think it remains to be seen, but I think it almost felt inevitable as Poot started to look unsteady that maybe they should have elected Jeffrey Donaldson in the first place. Um, so we will see. A penny for what Eileen Foster must be thinking at the moment right now. After all, it was her, she and Jeffrey Donaldson both defected from the LC mm -hmm. units to DUP at the exact same time. So I wonder whether she's feeling slightly smug at the moment. I think she's perfectly well entitled to be, isn't she? I think so. But anyway, it's, it's enough about Northern Ireland. There's another country right now, in fact, another party on the other side of the world, down under, that's also had some leadership changes and turmoil recently, hasn't it, Sam? Yeah, we have a couple of updates in Australia. Firstly, quickly, we talked about the Tasmanian state election um, a couple of months ago. Well, I can tell you that although Rebecca White resigned as Labour Party leader following her second successive de electoral defeat, um, she returned as leader less than three months after stepping down. And because David O'Byrne, who was elected as the new leader, had to step down following sexual harassment allegations just two weeks into his job. So Rebecca White has returned, and we'll see whether that changes the fortunes of the Labour Party in Tasmania. But then nationally, the National Party of Australia, which is part of the governing coalition, has also had a new leader because Barnaby Joyce returned to his position as leader and deputy prime minister following the ousting of Michael McCormack two weeks ago. And it follows a turbulent three years, which has already involved an unsuccessful challenge from Joyce to reclaim his position. So this time he was successful in ousting his replacement. And a reshuffle of the ministerial team also followed, with responsibilities in the party shifting, rewarding his own supporters, including former deputy leader Bridget McK McKenzie, who is the biggest winner, who returns to cabinet as minister for emergency management emergency management and regionalisation and that increases the female representation in cabinet back to an all-time high of eight. A big Joyce supporter in Andrew Gee also enters cabinet as Veterans Affairs Minister and these roles were both taken away respectively from Mark Colton and Darren Chester who were big McCormack supporters. And also Deputy Leader David Littleproud retained his agricultural portfolio and also picked up Northern Australia from Keith Pitt, who, although he kept most of his portfolios, will no longer attend Cabinet. So Chern, question I have for you on the National Party front is, with an election due in Australia within the next year, where does this leave the coalition now that Barnaby Joyce is back in his position as leader of the National Party? Well, first of all, it makes politics much more interesting. Um, I think from the coalition's perspective, it is both an opportunity and a threat. There are a couple of seats in New South Wales, uh, particularly the seats of Patterson and Hunter, which are coal mining seats. And those seats in particular are seats that Barnaby Joyce has been very much having a laser-like focus in trying to increase national, the National Party's influence within the coalition. 
And I think this switch from McCormack to Joyce would definitely help him in, in increasing that level of influence as well. It will also enable him to hold on to much more easily, I suspect, the seats in Queensland, which proved so decisively in Scott Morrison's re-election in 2019. Seats like Capricornia and Flynn. These are again coal mining seats where the issue of Adani um, is particularly, whether to, to build the Adani mine was particularly important. And it was where didderance of the Labour Party and Joyce being a former Queensland senator's strong support for coal mining will help to solidify those seats. So I think in terms of the National Party's perspective, it will now allow them to hold on to the seats in which they, get, they won so decisively and possibly even more. However, on the flip side for the Liberals, this could prove much more problematic because Barnaby Joyce is a very polarising figure and he has been accused in the past of sexual harassment and, uh, and is untrusted by a lot of people, particularly who will form what I would consider the core liberal base in the more city and suburban areas. So although it could be a boon, good news for his national party increasing influence, for Scott Morrison, he could be looking a little bit more nervously right now. And you can expect a lot more points of difference mm -hmm. and tension as newspaper headlines over the next year as Joyce is a much more competitive figure than Michael McCormack. Mm. And I mean, one of the reasons Joyce's challenge seemed to be successful was based on um, the response of the National Party to the coalition's climate policies, just as one issue within the coalition. Is this quite a big point of tension between the two parties? And do you think that Joyce's Re return as as leader of the National Party worsens this kind of policy divide? I think so. I think the plan, if you look at Scott Morrison's language over the last six months to a year, was that he was slowly shifting the coalition to adopt a policy of net zero, which is something he wanted to bring to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. But the return of Barnaby Joyce has very much put that very much in doubt. So I think... Mm -hmm. And the Liberals themselves know, particularly those defending seats in Victoria, suburban Victoria, know they have to look on with a rather nervous shoulder at both the Labour Party and the Greens having the potential to take seats there. So I think this will make it much more problematic for um, the Liberals. And like I said, as I mentioned earlier, his, his past treatment or how he behaves towards women. And you can expect those MPs such as Katie Allen in Higgins, for example, possibly Fiona Martin and Reid, to be much more vocal in their opposition to what the National Party is holding back in terms of what climate policy Australia and the coalition should adopt. So I think you can expect much more division there. And in turn, this will mm -hmm. probably give a bigger platform to Joyce to voice his own opinion as well. So I expect that you can expect tensions between both of them to very much increase, yes. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that you said an election is coming, they all want to hold the seats for all their own reasons and they have different policy methods to get there and climate change and how you do climate change is a big political cleavage in Australia. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that as the election approaches as well. But And just a quick question on the Tasmania Labour Party front, as I mentioned at the beginning. Is Rebecca White expected to just be a placeholder or do you think she will still lead the party into the next election? First of all, David O'Byrne lasted a shorter time as leader as Edwin Poots. So for that, I, I think that deserves a little bit of recognition, don't you, Sam? Um, but on, <laughs> on the question of whether Rebecca White will lead the party, I think 
she stood down reluctantly from the party leadership after she, did, she lost the second time round. But I had to be to be a bit surprised that she returned so much more quickly. I think at the moment she's very much seen as an interim leader. It's a fact that the left faction is not particularly happy with the right faction and vice versa. And she is seen as a woman who can unite both factions and is well liked across both factions of the party. I think she's also a very competent debater as well. But where she's fallen down in the last two elections was that she's unable to present a compelling policy vision to the people of Tasmania. So she might be a good debater, but she's unable to sell that vision to the wider Tasmanian public. And I'm sorry, you've, you've had two goals at the cherry. I know this election you had, it was dominated by COVID. And in the last election, you're sort of trying to rebuild the Labour Party. But the fact that she lost the seat and went backwards, I just can't see how a two-term twice loser could lead the party again to a third election. Can you, Sam? No, I think it will be very difficult to stomach, but um, at least for now, she's back and we'll see whether that arrangement lasts. I think as well, the, the final thing to say is that Tasmania's fixed-term parliament. So you just held this election this year. You, the next election is only due in 2024, to, uh, 2025. So there's still a long way more to go. And there is ample time, given that she's had a, she just recently gave birth, to be sort of calm the waters a bit before maybe in two years' time, with one year leading to the election, Hanover to possibly either a deputy, Anita Dow, or watch out for Dean Winter, who outpolled David O'Byrne as a first-time candidate in Franklin. So my gut would say that she's more of an interim leader more than anything else. Well, Indeed. we'll have to see. And I think that's a good moment to pause and take a little break, and we'll be right back in just a moment. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, today we'll be discussing the pol politics and political parties in Italy. Italy's had a rich history and recovered the Italian government collapse a couple of podcasts ago. But we thought that this time around, we'll take a wider overview of some of the politics or some of the, of the main political parties that currently are in the Italian Chamber of Deputies and the Italian Senate. So Sam, first of all, to start to start off this discussion, there are five parties that we'll be covering. So we're talking about the Forza Italia run by Silvio Berlusconi. We'll be talking about the League, um, Brothers of Italy, and the Democrats and the Five Star Movement. All of them currently, apart from the Brothers of Italy, support the technocratic government led by the former ECB president, Mario Draghi which was formed as, uh, as following the collapse of Giuseppe Conte's five-star-led government. How is this latest technocratic government faring, in your opinion? I think as Italian governments go, it seems to be proving quite uneventful, which I think is a success in many ways. Um, I, I just looked and he's currently on a, an approval rating of above 50%, which for a frontline member of Italian politics is quite a strong approval rating to have. And as I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast, this is obviously a coalition government that involves many parties which, on paper, should not be able to work with each other very effectively. But it seems to be at the moment that they seem to be ploughing on with the, the back end of the COVID-19 pandemic and economic recovery. And by all accounts, Mario Draghi seems to be leading a, an effective operation at trying to get that on the road. So what has been the secret of 
that of Mario Draghi in bringing all these parties which were warring during the two five-star-led governments under Giuseppe Conte together. Is it Mario Draghi's personality and the respect they have for Mario Draghi? I think that plays a role. I think also, I mean, as we talked about back in February when this was going on, I think another thing here is that because it's in the middle of a crisis, there's sort of a, a vested interest in everybody across the political spectrum to try and get Italy out of this crisis because once you've got out of the crisis you can start implementing other policies that you are in favour of so I think we'll wait to see whether as the pandemic comes to an end hopefully whether these parties can continue working together effectively but I think there's a common goal at the moment and that's what's helping them. But let's get straight into it Sam shall we talk about some of the parties who have formed the centre-right coalition? Yeah I think that's a good place to start because they're certainly um, the parties that seem to have been faring the the best in opinion polls looking ahead to the next general election in Italy. So in the 2018 election, the centre-right coalition consisted of five parties, three of which we're going to focus on today, which are Forza Italia, the League and the Brothers of Italy. Collectively, they obtained 265 seats in 2018, which was a substantial increase on 2013. But the 37% that they polled in terms of the vote share is the second worst combined vote share since 1994 and led to the quite unstable governing arrangement that we've discussed multiple times on this podcast now. So starting with Forza Italia, which is the oldest of these parties and the more traditionally successful of them, it was founded back in 1994 by the infamous Silvio Berlusconi. And although it was dissolved in 2009. It was then refounded in 2013 and until 2018 was the lead party in the centre-right coalition. It's still to this day led by Berlusconi and currently has three members within Draghi's unity technocratic government. 2018 was the worst ever Chamber of Deputies result for the party with just 106 seats and they actually came in fourth place. But since its founding, it's had two stints of leading the national government, with Berlusconi serving as Prime Minister three times, and has been dominated by huge rifts and personality divides, more famously between Silvio Berlusconi and Parisi, who was the candidate for mayor in Milan back in 2016, and also over the potential appointment of Giovanna Totti as vice president in 2013 and 14. And we also saw this in the former European Parliament president, Antonia Tajani, was outlined as the potential candidate for prime minister in 2018. And since then has been brought into the top team of the party to try and rectify their now floundering polls, admittedly to little success because the party are currently polling under 10% at the moment. So, Chern, a few questions. Is Forza Italia just a Silvio Berlusconi party or does it have a role beyond him as an individual? I would say for, for Forza Italia is mostly a Silvio Berlusconi party. In this, if you look at the fact that all challenges to his authority are no longer within the party just now, you just listed a few examples of Parsi there who has left the party over disagreements with Berlusconi, not necessarily over ideological differences for that matter. And even though he might not want to be prime minister anymore, he makes all the appointments, all the key decision makings of who occupies all the key party posts. So it implies to me that Forza Italia is still very much a Berlusconi party. The key test of this is the fact that Berlusconi himself is 84 years old. If the party 
dies off soon after he either moves on, retires from politics, or you know, more likely he moves on, it then becomes very obvious that it is the Berlusconi party rather than a centre-right ideology in which it currently occupies, really. And I think by the fact that he brought Antonio Tajani onto and as current vice president is that Silvio Berlusconi is aware that for Forza Italia to con- and, his, and the legacy of it to continue in Italian politics into the future, they're going to need to branch out beyond just brand Berlusconi, really, and adopt one that is based on a liberal conservative platform, which they have tried to, but at the moment it's too morphed into mm-hmm. brand Berlusconi. So they're trying to find somebody else to lead it forward. And Tajani is, in Berlusconi's eyes, the man to lead it forward. And you talk about the platform of Forza Italia. They, since the 2018 election, as I said, they've drifted into mid-single digits in the opinion polls, which for this party, which has been quite established, is is dreadful. Do you think that it is a case of them having a platform that voters don't particularly agree with? Or is there not really any space at the moment for a moderate right-wing party? And if not, why not? I think they are being squeezed on both ends. You've got on the more liberal end, the five-star movement. And on the on the other end, on the far, on the right-wing element, you've got the League and the Brothers of Italy. In fact, Brothers of Italy is it war came out of what was then Berlusconi's party as well. So I think what so not only are you squeezed on both the right-wing elements, but on and on the centrist elements. Another key thing is that Berlusconi's been there since 1994. He has been part of the Italian establishment, even though he tries to portray himself as this populist candidate. I feel a lot of voters associate him with the establishment, given how long he's been in politics for. So therefore, you then have not only the, the, <clears throat> the fact you're squeezed on both ends ideologically, but then you also have this anti-establishment, they both can wrap themselves around this anti-establishment against Berlusconi, mm-hmm. which is, I think, particularly powerful as well. It also doesn't help by all this. Not only do you have the how the anti-establishment uh, factor you have being squeezed ideologically, but the third thing is that Berlusconi's party itself is divided on how you deal with these insurgent anti-establishment threats on both the liberal and on the conservative end. Do you deal with them and, and hope to ride on their votes to get them back? Or do you just ignore them altogether? And I don't think the party has found a convincing answer to that, really. And and finally, with Forza Italia, we talked a lot about Silvio Berlusconi as an individual. What do we think his legacy is? And what, what's the key to his longevity at the top of Italian politics now? Well, twenty five over 25 years on since the party was first formed back in 1994. Well, in a way, you know, Brothers of Italy is part of his political legacy, given that his embrace of the Mario Monti government in the early 2010s led to the formation of Brothers of Italy. So that is an unintended consequence of part of his legacy and the wider centre-right bloc. I think part of his ability, you asked about why he's always been so successful. I think it's been a number of factors in that. Firstly, he is a very charismatic individual um, and he has a very... and he has also been able to capture the public's imagination. So in 1994, he won the election on largely on a big jobs promise as well. And in more, more, more recently, and I think more relevantly in this idea of showing his ability to connect, in the 2001 election, he proposed this contract with Italy, 
which is modeled on Newt Gingrich's contract with America, and that was used successfully in the 1994 American midterms. And it listed five platforms that proposed as part of the contract, included simplifying the tax system, halving the unemployment rate, a massive public works or infrastructure spending, raising the monthly pensions, and more police officers um, to patrol the uh, main urban areas. And that to me not only speaks to a center-right liberal conservative ideology, but it's a strong streak of populism within that. And I think being the being one of the fact that this was this was done about 20 years ago when mm-hmm. that space was not really was not as crowded as it is now, gave Berlusconi the USP and allowed him to return as prime minister quite a few times. It also does help as well that he's a media tycoon. So he does get a lot of free advertising. So and I don't think that can be discounted either. And and moving on within the centre-right bloc, we have the League, which from the 2018 election spent a year in the government with the Five Star Movement, so has government experience as well. It was founded back in 1991 and is, is was made up of a federation of six regional parties in northern Italy and has since transitioned to being a national party despite still attracting most of its support from its northern heartlands. Um, It predominantly champions federalism and greater regional autonomy and has even at times advocated for the state of Padania, which is the secession of northern Italy. In 2018, it had its big outbreak, which was it became the third largest party in Italy. And then in 2019, in the EU parliament elections, what actually was the largest party and it had excellent results back in its early days, peaking at 117 deputies back in 1994. But in 2018, it exceeded that with 125, entering the government for change with the Five Star Movement, as I said, under Giuseppe Conti. Matteo Salvini has led the party since 2013, and it's been a much more Eurosceptic perspective on the party and has cooperated with figures who we've talked about on this podcast in the last few weeks, like Marine Le Pen and Het Wilders in the Netherlands. So it's almost seemed surprising that the League entered the Drahi technocratic government this year, being such an outside party. What, what do you think made them agree to it, especially under such a Europhilic leader as Mario Draghi is? I think that's a very good question. Um, first of all, when you say Salvini is Eurosceptic and he has brought a much more Eurosceptic act to the League in general, Nonetheless, since he took over the leadership, he has moderated his um, and his Eurosceptic stances since then, largely to ensure that he could cooperate with Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia movement. So he is much more Eurosceptic to what the league was before he took over, but relative to his position when he first started over, he is much mm-hmm. less Eurosceptic. I mean, in 2014, in the lead up to the European Parliament elections, he called the Euro a crime against mankind, which is... I don't think you can have any more worse things to say about a particular policy than that. So although he's Eurosceptic, he's less Eurosceptic than he is before. So that's point number one. Point number two, and I think it's also key, and I mentioned this earlier, is that we talked about the fact that the context of the Giuseppe Conte government falling was a disagreement how to spend money it got from the EU when, um, when, it had, when Italy had to do with the worst of the COVID crisis, if you remember during the early days. And that big pot of money and the ability to spend it and deciding how to spend it, I think is a very attractive offer for a political party. And one that even 
Matteo Salvini, I think, found it very difficult to turn down. It is also notable that he, the one of the positions that they got within the Mario Draghi government is uh, Minister for the Economy, which is one of those big um, portfolios that will be able to decide the allocation of such money. So I, I think the overall package was mm-hmm. too tempting for Matteo Salvini and the ability to spend all those EU funds and not impact Italy's budget bottom line was opportunity too good to refuse. And talking of Matteo Salvini, do you think it's fair to say that he did change the ideological approach of the party or did their current platform predate him as a leader? So I think yes and no, I would say. I think he has certainly brought the party to a new level and that's certainly appealing to the South because the League Party is previously called the Northern League because as you mentioned, it was a succession (laughs) of the Northern Italy, something in which the Southern Italians find not a platform they couldn't really appeal to, frankly. Um, and, you know, the gripes that the Southern Italians had against Rome was very different from the gripes that the Northern Italians had. So certainly by just changing it to the league, and he has broadened that appeal, has brought the party to its new level. But ideology, I'm not quite sure whether he is that much different from what the league or Northern League used to be. He, you know, he proposes policies like a flat tax and opposes same-sex marriage something which the league has done before. He has brought, however, an anti-immigration, anti-EU flavor as a tool to, I suspect, win over the Southern Italians. And I don't think they were as prominent as the, in, the, in, in the Northern League itself. So I, I think in conclusion, what we can say is that the broad contours of the party are still the same, but to attract those extra percentage that he has been successful in doing so, he has brought in the anti-immigration, anti-EU to be much more prominent within the party, which has moved the party along further. And do you think that is what explains the fact that they've wildly fluctuated from their good performance back in the 90s to relative obscurity until 2018? Yes, it certainly explains their growth in recent years. The fact that they've also found much more voter support in the South and also they've been able to tap into, like many other European countries to discuss over the last couple of weeks, this anti-immigration, anti-EU uh, flavor that we've been hearing. I think it's also very interesting to find out why they were not doing too well in the 90s. And I think it's largely how they viewed a relationship with Berlusconi and his Forza Italia party. So it was notable that the League joined, the Northern League at that time, joined Berlusconi's first government, but there was a disagreement between the party over how you would do pension reforms, which and old people are a key constitute part of the Northern League. And the pension reforms will hurt this key constituency. Splitting the, and how you, whether you remain in government or walk out, split the party during that period as well. And I think what mm-hmm. doesn't help as well in the 90s and why they had to broaden it out to include the anti-EU and anti-immigration is the fact that unlike Scotland, Italian politics is not divided along the fact that whether Northern Italy remains as part of Italy or it becomes independent. There is no independence cleavage as such, which allows the formation of a pro-separatist party and a pro-federal Italy party, unlike the SNP and the Conservatives, for example, in Scotland. And that absence meant that it was more of an ideological divide within the party, which meant that some of the separatists wanted to work the centre-left and some wanted to work the centre-right and they could not agree with each other, which is why 
it, the parties split. And as we know, division is death in politics. So the absence of that cleavage really, and the fact there's no cleavage around Northern mm -hmm. succession of the North has explained why they struggle. And Salvini had to change that to attract new support. And I mean, they haven't really been able to completely corner the market on this kind of ideology, have they? Because, I mean, certainly in recent years, we've we've seen the rise of a party we've talked about a couple of times already, which is the Brothers of Italy, who are a nationalist conservative party founded back in 2012 after a split from the people of freedom to better represent the Italian right, as they said they were doing. And... I mean, until 2018, they'd never really won more than 5% of the vote. But in 2018, they tripled their seat count and more than doubled their vote count. And since then, have gone from strength to strength, even now polling around 20%, occasionally in first place. And and this is all after, in 2019, Marco Marsilio became the party's first regional president after winning the election in Abruzzo. And these kind of step-by-step -step breakthroughs of the party have translated into an utter explosion in support in the last, well, 24 months, really, in the last two years. First question, Chern, the obvious one is, what has provoked this meteoric rise in support for the Brothers of Italy? Indeed, and ever since the Drahi government was formed and the only major party not to be in it, they've gone from strength to strength. Um, some more and you know that some of the opinion polls have put it in second place which is which is which is quite worrying frankly given their policy platform I think what has been noticeable is that if you look at when brothers it started to rise it has come almost at a point when the league party entered government and began to fall in support after the initial euphoria of them getting into government so I think there's a tr big translation that right wing to far right vote as the lead party been in government and has moved over to the brothers of Italy. So I think that's the first thing. And they share a lot of the same ideological differences and being much more like right wing to far right scale. So I think that is allowed to facilitate a transfer of votes as well. And I suspect being the only party in opposition, they can fully wrap themselves into the anti-establishment feather that often characterize Italian politics, particularly when there's a technocratic government, when all the other parties are involved, they can really say that if Drahi's opinion approval ratings continue to decline, they can really stand to benefit from that. So I think that is what really has provoked and what has the potential to further increase their rise in over recent times. I mean, with this rise in support, what do we think its objectives are? Because it's somewhat of an unknown entity, really, having polled so minimally until this until this period right now. And whenever the next election takes place is likely to be the first election in which they perform to a, to a standard where they could be involved in conversations around the formation of the government. So do we expect them to agree to enter a government or even be invited to enter one? I would very, very much doubt that. I mean... The, the closest party that would probably entertain the idea of Brothers of Italy being government is probably the League Party. I'm not sure, however much Silvio Berlusconi tries to create a united centre-right force, that I think the Brothers of Italy is one pill a bit hard to swallow. And even the League Party, the, the League Party itself, Salvini proposed in tw June 2021 to include a coalition that, of the current parties that are within 
the, the Drahi government, specifically excluding the Brothers of Italy. So if Matteo Salvini's lead party is not willing to talk to the Brothers of Italy, there's no chance in hell that anyone else will be willing to talk to them, really. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the League, who we've just talked about in detail as well, with the League and Brothers of Italy both leading opinion polls at the same time, how do you think this is possible for two right to far right parties to be both leading the opinion polls at the same time and getting the same volume of support? Because it does seem on the surface unusual that they can both have that kind of support without sharing a base. I think, first of all, the reason why two parties similar ideologies leading is that Italian politics is really fragmented in the last 10 to 15 years. So therefore, the threshold in which you need to become first in the opinion polls in Italy is significantly lowered compared to what it was 10, 20 years ago. A situation quite similar to Finland, for example. You know, they, their parties regularly top the poll with about 20% of the vote. Now in Italy, it's looking about you know, 20 to 30% as well. So it's therefore a lot easier um, for one party to top the opinion polls than it used to be in the past. And I think that has a lot to explain about it as well. You're right in the fact that they share a voter base. And as I mentioned a bit earlier, the, the league's fall has coincided the Brothers of Italy's rise. But I do think that this means, this, this means as well that I suspect a lot of those voters are voters in industrial Italy who probably would have voted the Democratic Party or his previous, previous parties in the past, but have now moved over to the right wing to far right parties and are shopping around along that populist authoritarian angle really, and they haven't quite settled on one. So I think that that has enabled mm -hmm. this pool of voters to, and it's quite a significant pool of voters and them moving around has enabled them to be in first and second place. What do you think, Sam? Do you agree with this analysis or do you have any other theories? Yeah, I completely agree with that analysis. But it also reminds me of what we talked about a bit when the Netherlands went to the polls, which is that if you have a right to far right anti-establishment party that has entered the government, it then allows space for another party to rise up and claim to be the new anti-establishment by claiming that the original party is now part of the establishment. So I think there's a strong element of they may well share a voter base, but I think it's now split between people who are quite happy that their party has managed to get into government and potentially has some policy influence. But on the other side, you've got people who are saying, well, I voted against the establishment and I feel like the league having gone into league with Mario Draghi and with the five star movement before that they just don't really represent the kind of opinions I have on political parties. And not only that, Salvini is committed to the centre-right coalition with Forza Italia mm -hmm. and he's also moderated some of his anti-European stance in order to achieve that. And I wonder whether the sort of policy compromise has gone down badly with the ideological purists within that right-wing to far-right coalition. So I think that does also help to explain why the league has been able to gain some votes from Forza Italia, which has enabled to maintain its relative mm -hmm. position in the opinion polls, but lost it to Brothers of Italy as a result. Well, I think that's enough talking about the centre-right coalition. How about everything else? Well, we'll first start off with the Democratic Party, which I didn't realise is a relatively new political party is somewhat different because the social democratic parties we cover in the past, you know, have tended to be the oldest political parties in this country. 
The Democratic Party emerged from the ashes of something called the olive tree in 2007, as a, as, as it was a party formed out of a alliance of center-left parties from the Italian communists to the left faction of the Christian Democratic Party, which was then represented by Romano Prodi, who is a former um, president of the European Commission. They fought three elections in 2008, they won the 2013 elections, and in 2018, it suffered a setback, and it was the worst performance out of all three elections in which they fought, similar to Forza Italia. It has supplied four prime ministers, Prodi, as I spoke about, Matteo Renzi, Enrico Letti, and Paolo Ginetti, who is currently the European Commission for the Economy in Ursula von der Leyen's administration. It is also one of the parties that's supporting the Mario Draghi government, and before that, is supported Giuseppe Conte's second government with Five Star Movement. So Sam, the party is considered as a, from a myriad of ideology. We've got the communists to the Christian left that has created to form the Democratic Party. Given its wide-ranging history, do you see, as Italian politics becoming more fractured, that one or more of these factions will break off and form a viable alternative? Or is it still very much organized like the right around Berlusconi, for example, or personality? I don't think the Democratic Party has the same kind of relationship with personality as Forza Italia does. But nonetheless, I think it will... I, I think it's unlikely that we see major fragmentation of this party into smaller factions anytime soon, purely for one reason, which I think is that it's sort of a relationship of convenience under the left banner, because given the fragmentation of the party system, I think if the left were to split up into different factions, it would sort of disappear from the front line of Italian politics by splitting into such small vultures, because even the Democratic Party as one uniting party of these factions is not performing particularly well at the moment. So if that were then to splinter down into smaller groups, I think those groups risk fading into irrelevance. And I mean, we've seen that with Matteo Renzi's split into the Italia Viva party, which, yes, it did have a big influence on Italian politics by bringing down Giuseppe Conti as prime minister. But in terms of its electoral prospects as a party in the next Italian general election, I don't think we'll be seeing them obtaining many deputies. And speaking of Matteo Renzi, I think it's interesting to talk about Matteo Renzi for a little bit, because he seemed to lead at one point after the, they got into government, a revival of the Democratic Party and bring it to new heights. Mm -hmm. If you look at the party's very strong performance in the 2014 European Parliament elections and the 2015 regional elections, what went wrong for Matteo Renzi? Well, yes, he did appear as the sort almost like a deity figure within the Democratic Party, bringing it into government in 2013. And he was seen as the youthful candidate. A lot of young people were supporting him. But then he made a fatal error, which I think David Cameron could talk to him a bit about, which is he staked his entire political future on a constitutional referendum, which he went on to lose. And it wasn't necessarily the fact that the constitutional reforms he was proposing were particularly unpopular because when they proposed this constitutional referendum, they had about 75% support in opinion polls. But when you stake your personal reputation as prime minister on this kind of ballot, he basically made it very easy for the poll to become about him as a person and the opposition almost unilaterally 
uh, united in opposing these developments. And when this was at a time when the more anti-establishment parties were beginning to emerge, it became very easy to pin this as an opportunity to remove the government. And we know that in Italy, governments and political parties are not particularly popular or trusted. I mean, a statistic from 2015 is that 97% of Italians said they don't trust political parties as institutions. 97%. So when they're given the opportunity to bring down the prime minister, I think it was taken and that was his big mistake. I, I think you are very. that's a very interesting point that you raised there. And we're going to talk about the big disruptor and the one which has really burst onto the scene and dominated Italian politics for a while, which is the Five Star Movement. It was started by Beppo Grejo, who was a comedian and blogger in 2008. And the five stars are in reference to five key issues of sustainable development, sustainable transport, public water, right to internet access, and environmentalism. So Sam, I know the party really doesn't like it as it builds itself as an anti-establishment, but given those five stars, where would you place the five-star movement on the political spectrum? Because if you look at it from... It is, is in, in, when he went into government, he went into government with the far-right lead, with the right-wing to far-right lead, and then to the mm-hmm. centre-left Democrats, which is quite a big turnaround ideologically, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a very difficult party to place because they have such a myriad of political positions that occasionally even seem to contradict each other at times. I think it's almost like a pick-and-mix style politics where they see what kind of policies are popular with people and then just put them in their manifesto. Because if you read even their key um, manifesto policies within the 2018 election as one example, it w- it's hard to recognise it as a standard model for a political party that we've talked about in the weeks gone by across Europe. So it's very difficult to place. I mean, on the whole, it seems broadly left-leaning in terms of the majority of its policies because it supports things like welfare expansion, market regulation, environmentalism. But then when you have such harsh um, positions on immigration and occasionally some Eurosceptic elements as well, you see both sides of it. So I think it's quite difficult. Interesting. And you may mention the fact that ideologically, if we talked about it, is that there seems to be a bit more closer um, affinity with the Democratic Party than the Leap Party ideologically. Mm-hmm. But that government with the Democratic Party was filled with tension from virtually from the get-go. Why do you think that w- was the case? I mean, I think what had happened is that the Democratic Party entered government under Giuseppe Conti just after they'd been in government with the League, where they clearly established quite a different approach to governance as the Democratic Party would particularly entertain or be used to. And I think it was also part of the, because the Five Star Movement are so inexperienced with governing, I think there was much, I think there was just a conflict of how they wanted to run the government. I mean, the big problem came down to the Italia Viva resignation as to why the government eventually tipped over the edge with conflicting positions on the COVID funds allocated by the European Union. But I think there was just a conflict over what they wanted to bring to the government. And when you have two big parties that are both required to make the government sustainable, both of them feel like they can take control of policy. And I think that just leads to conflict generally within politics. 
That's very interesting. But moving broadly, though, in this context of Italy, they, these kind of parties, like Five Star Movement, has gotten a lot more success you know, centrist anti-establishment parties compared to some of the pirate parties or parties that try and introduce more direct democracy within them. I mean, the closest I can think of is probably Emmanuel Macron's mm-hmm. um, On Marsh movement. However, that is one in which we talked mm-hmm. about last week, hasn't really put down its roots politically and it's more of a pres- in a presidential system. Why do you think the Five Star Movement has considerably more support in Italy compared to its other counterparts in Europe? I think it all comes down to just Italy's attitudes towards politics, as I've spoken about before. I think there's a lot more space for anti-establishment parties to emerge because appetite for being anti-establishment is, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that I think it's the majority opinion. So I think these parties find it much easier to feed off of a distrust in political institutions and figures and parties and the five star movement was able to capitalize on that so therefore do you think that as it has been in government since the 2018 election really this party has changed from one that's policy seeking to one that's more office seeking in nature i think so i think so because i mean the origins of this party stem from these so-called Vafa rallies, which I don't want to directly translate because it's inappropriate to say on the podcast, to a conscious government forming party. So it's gone from being um, a glorified protest movement to being a party that can actually sit in government formation negotiations and come out as the leading party in those. And I think, I think divides still exist within the party over what their end goal should be as an institution. But I think it's gone from being the largest individual party in 2013, where it didn't really want to enter government negotiations, to now being the leading party in government. And I think they will be going into the next election wanting to do that again. Interesting. And we'll be continuing to look out for the Five Star Movement. But a final question to round everything up. It is Giuseppe Conte who is now going to be playing a big role in the Five Star Movement itself. And he remains popular with the wider public, particularly um, after the handling of the initial phases of the coronavirus pandemic. Under Giuseppe Conte, what differences would there be in the Five Star Movement? Or is Grillo holding the strings behind this party? This is where the divide in the party comes from, because as soon as Conte finished as being Prime Minister and has gone to a more frontline position in the Five Star Movement, He's been meeting Enrico Letta to try and reinforce common goals between the Democratic Party and the Five Star Movement. So I think it's trying to shift it to a more, to better position within Italy's coalition and bloc system as a lot of the traditional parties go into the elections via. Uh, And I think that's something that Beppe Grillo does not particularly agree with because I think fundamentally he wants to be more focused on anti-establishment purity rather than playing the electoral game so i think conti and Grio may have some bigger conflicts to come as they look ahead to the next general election but certainly for now i think what conti wants to do with the party is transform it into one that goes into an election wanting to win and goes into an election with the plan about how they want to govern well the next election is two years away so but As we've learned in Italy, we're never that far off from a government crisis totally changing the equation of it. So I suspect this will not be the last time we'll be talking about Italian politics. 
But mm-hmm. to round everything out, we've discussed five parties, and frankly, there are five out of a myriad of political parties we could be talking about. We briefly mentioned there uh, Matteo Renzi's new Italia Viva party, and the the omens certainly point to the fact that um, Sam, the Italian political system is this fragmenting, isn't it? I mean, I said to you before we started that we were talking about five parties today, all of which are leading opinion polls in some ways. Um, And the oldest one of them was formed less than 30 years ago, which for a for a majorly established Western European democracy is astounding, really. Indeed, it really is. But what is it about Italian politics that has fostered so many parties and consequently their prime ministers of very short terms? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it comes from the fact that Italy's had a turbulent history since since the Second World War, which I don't think has helped with its political system. But as I've talked about a few times this podcast, I think it all comes down to the just distrust of the Italian people of political institutions. So as soon as one party gets into government and starts implementing policy, they're no longer the flavour of the month because they've been as part of the establishment. So then another one will come along and replace them. And I think Italian people, because they don't trust parties, don't really have the kind of cultural relationship to political parties that other democracies have. And therefore, it's not necessarily a party surviving because they're a traditional block. A party has to survive because it has to capture imaginations on election day. So I think that is the difference. Do you agree? I do think that this idea very much short termism is like Berlusconi can promise a lot. He can campaign well. But the moment he gets into government, he can't govern the country, falls apart and we're back to square mm-hmm. one again. But it seems that Italians keep falling for that same trick over and over again, <laughs> but with different personalities. This time in Salvini, who knows what will come out of the next one. But finally, Sam, and to wrap this up, do you think they're going to win tomorrow? I really don't want to comment on that. I'm hoping, but we'll see. As they sometimes say, it's the hope that kills you. But we have less than 48 hours to find out and we can't end without wishing well, England to do well in it and probably means we're going to lose a few Italian subscribers, aren't we, Sam? (laughs) Yes, but we send best wishes to everyone watching the game tomorrow. And I think that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Please do join us again next week when we'll be talking about two elections that are taking place this week in Eastern Europe, in Moldova and Bulgaria. And we'll be also lamenting on whatever the result is tomorrow night, I'm sure, whichever way it goes. And as usual, we'll be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe via our social media pages as well. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>